0: Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Bolt decision 50 years ago this week remains a pivotal moment in treaty rights history. After decades of work and sacrifice, a handful of tribes secured legal affirmation that what is written in a treaty has true and lasting meaning. In this case, the right to access traditional fishing. Of course, the decision was just the beginning of the fight. We'll get a reminder of what led up to the Bolt decision and the chain of events in the 50 years since. That's coming up after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. The FBI just launched a new project to collect more data about the missing and murdered indigenous peoples crisis in the state. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman reports on the announcement at the Wind River Reservation made last week.
2: The FBI is the primary law enforcement agency that investigates serious crimes on the Wind River Reservation. And they're trying to collect more information about those who've gone missing or have been murdered. The agency set up a new designated email account, W-Y-M-M-I-P at FBI.gov, to better understand what the crisis looks like in the state and what resources the agency can contribute to solving cases. FBI agent Leonard Carollo says he recognizes that tribal members have not always been comfortable working with the agency. We recognize these historical barriers and want to do all we can to improve the flow of information. The agency will collect information, like new details or cases that were never reported, for the next 90 days. Then we'll research and investigate the tips. The FBI also plans to host in-person information gathering sessions on the reservation. I'm Hannah Haberman.
1: The Anchorage murder trial of Brian Smith enters its second week. The 52-year-old man is accused of killing two Alaska Native women, both from two rural communities, who had experienced homelessness in Anchorage. Last week, during jury selection, jurors were asked if they could handle seeing gruesome photos and video that Smith allegedly shot of one of the killings on his cell phone. Last week, a woman testified that she stole the phone from Smith's truck. At the time, she said she lived in a tent and was riding around town with Smith on a date. In 2019, the woman turned in an SD card to police and told them she found it on the ground. But in court last week, she admitted to stealing Smith's phone from his truck and copying the video to an SD card, which she turned over to police after her therapist encouraged her to do so. As the trial finished its first week, defense attorneys argued the footage shouldn't be shown to the jury because so many different stories had been told about the source of the video. Before trial recessed last week, the judge asked the prosecution to explain more about how police obtained the video and how it was handled. As of now, the judge plans to allow the jury to see the footage in which Smith does not appear, but is heard telling his victim that he plans to kill her. Investigators say they recognized his South African accent from a prior investigation involving Smith, which led to his arrest. The federal government is launching a new behavioral health call line for students and staff at tribal schools. The Mountain West News Caleb Caleb has more. The line is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for students and staff at schools funded by the Bureau of Indian Education. The agency says the line will mostly be staffed by Indigenous counselors who have experience serving Native communities. They will offer both immediate individual crisis support and scheduling for virtual counseling. Emily Harrows is with the Johns Hopkins Center for Indigenous Health. She says this added support comes at a critical time.
2: Across the board, we see inequities in mental health-related outcomes among Indigenous groups, particularly Indigenous youth. And so having something really tailored to those communities is really
3: important in order to make sure that the care that's provided is culturally congruent
1: and also accessible. The Behavior Healthline will serve more than 180 tribal schools. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. And I'm Joel Freitas.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A 1974 federal judge's ruling known as the Bolt Decision dramatically changed fishing in the state of Washington, and it endures as the basis for treaty rights decisions now and in the future. The decision, 50 years ago yesterday, was the culmination of protests by Native activists during the 1960s and 70s, most notably by Billy Frank Jr., Police arrested hundreds of people during what's known as the Fish Wars. In a recent op-ed, Nisqually Chairman Willie Frank III said the Bolt decision helped spark a renaissance of his tribe's culture and economy. Today on our show, we're talking with tribal fishing leaders and others about the 1974 decision and its legacy for fishing and treaty rights. We also want to hear your comments or questions about the Bolt decision. Do you remember the Fish Wars? Or do you have a grandparent or another relative that talked about them? Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We would really like to hear your personal stories on the show today, but you can also leave a comment on our website and social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, take your pick. Joining us now from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, we have Ed Johnstone. He is the chairman of the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission. He's also a Quinault tribal member. Welcome to the show, Ed.
5: Very good morning. Thank you.
0: Joining us from Yelm, Washington is Nancy Shippentower. She's an activist and chair of the Salmon Defense Fund, and she is Puyallup. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning. And also joining us from Vancouver, British Columbia, is Rob Purser. He is a tribal fisherman and the Suquamish Tribal Fisheries Director. Good morning to you too, Rob.
6: Yes, good morning.
0: Ed, I'm going to go ahead and start with you to begin our conversation. Can you believe it's been 50 years since Bolt was handed down?
5: Well, you know, actually I can. Um, it. Seems like a long time, a half a century, but as, as we've uh, taken that uh, court case and worked hard to uh, advance our treaty rights and our fishing rights, it, it uh, went rather quickly, actually.
0: Rather quickly. Time can fly. Well, Ed, tell us, uh, what about the Bolt decision is most noteworthy for tribes in Washington State, where you're from?
5: I think most noteworthy is our treaties are the supreme law of the land. The, the judge, Judge Bolt, um, interpreted, uh, you know, the the treaties in, embedded in the Constitution and, and the treaties that we signed in the specific language uh, to what we know and understood in 1854 and 1855 were... Um, what, what really was, um, I guess, the crux of what was on trial, that our treaties have meaning, and then they were interpreted by, by the courts through its, uh, through its process, and and um, and you know we can get a mo- little more into detail uh, if you you know if you like, but uh, that uh, the treaty right was upheld.
0: All right. Okay. Yeah, we definitely want to get into more details. But before we do that, let's go ahead and introduce a fourth guest on our show who is joining us from Olympia, Washington, Representative Deborah Lekanoff. She is the representative of Washington State's 40th House District. She's also Tlingit. Good morning, Representative Lakanoff, and thank you for joining us.
3: Good morning. It's such an honor to be here, and I can't tell you how warm it is to hear Ed Johnstone's voice talking about the 50th anniversary of the Bolt decision, it really is truly a blessing.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about Billy Frank, who, of course, we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Now, you championed a statue of his likeness in both Washington, D.C. and the Washington State Capitol there in Olympia. What was your connection to the late fishing rights activist?
3: Billy was such a warm person when Billy was working on fishing rights, which is his entire life, many people across this great state, including Ed, including Ron Allen, including Judge Bolt, were able to understand and learn how the right for treaties were embedded in the treaties within the Constitution, as Ed Johnstone had shared, which is as he shared, which I understand, the supreme law of the land. When The concept of Billy being put in the Hall of Statutes to be able to recognize his voice, his fight, his balance, his love of all Washingtonians, it was quite an honor to have Lieutenant Heck, his son, Chairman from Nisqually, Willie Frank, Jr., reach out to me and engage in a conversation of what if we were to have a great man such as Billy? Caring and representing our Washington state, being the first Native American from Washington state to be placed where thousands and thousands of people for many generations will look to him as being the voice of who we are today and for generations to come.
0: Now, Representative, it's interesting because there was a time when Billy Frank was was public enemy number one, according to public officials there in Washington state, vilified uh, by many. How does someone go from being an enemy of the state t- to being a hero for so many now?
3: You know, if you look at the bloodlines of Washington state, they're rooted within the first Americans, within the Washington tribes. So imagine if you were to flip the vilified of who was the hero and who was the villain, Right? Thousands of years of generations of Washington tribes are rooted in their bloodlines. It's rooted in their natural resources. It's rooted in their culture that runs deep within the waterways and it's all connected to the mighty salmon. So, if you were to flip the word villainize, who was the villain and who was the hero? You know, if you pause right now and you look to the mighty salmon, you know, Billy was fighting for what was right. He was fighting to say, if you have a healthy salmon, you have cool and clean water. My grandchildren and your grandchildren and grandchildren's grandchildren will have cool and clean water, and we all drink the same water. And who is the villain, right? Billy Frank is fighting for habitat, fighting for forestry, fighting for salmon, fighting for owls. If you have a strong salmon, as Billy put it, and as so many leaders, such as Ed, such as Ron Allen, such as Randy Kinley, such as Jimmy Wilson, such as Lorraine Loomis, such as Doreen Uh, Doreen Maloney, these leaders were fighting for something stronger and more important that if you have a mighty salmon and it's healthy, you have a healthy environment, you have a healthy economy, you have strong, healthy people. You have people who are recognizing and acknowledging the place that they live in and the place that I govern as an elected official is a sacred responsibility because we are governing for the first people whose bloodlines are here. So I actually would flip that and say Billy was the number one hero, and perhaps Washington State is now coming out of that villainize of polluting and destroying Mother Earth to be able to govern today with new lenses on our, our eyes that say Billy's going to be in Washington, D.C. looking over us, telling all of Washington, D.C. where we are. So I'd flip that villainize to maybe Billy's our hero.
0: <laughs> I really appreciate your passion, Representative Lakanoff. And, and do you think it's fair to say that the Bolt decision would never have happened without Billy Frank Jr.?
3: I think the Bolt decision would never have happened without the first people of Washington State. Billy was our leader. Billy was the voice. Billy was when he hugged you. It was you feel empowered. You could hear the birds sing. You could taste the freshness of the salmon. Billy, you wanted to walk with Billy. You wanted to stand with him. And the leaders that walked with Billy, and there are many leaders who walked with Billy, uh, those who come after him, the next generation, are uh, the heroes of today. You know, it was Billy's father, Willie Frank Jr., in his own language, who, Bolt, who Judge Bolt allowed him to speak, to speak in his own language. Uh, Grandpa Willie Frank told us how important the salmon was. What a hero. The elders of then, right? And Billy leading the way, you know, walking with leaders like Ed Johnstone. And then Willie Frank, the new generation coming in with all of his young leaders coming behind him and all the little ones behind him who are fighting through the opioid crisis, fighting through getting an education, fighting to protect why we have long hair, why we have the features we do, why we love the salmon. There are many heroes in this story, but I have to tell you, um, when a hero like Billy Frank hugs you, you know you can do anything in the world, and that's saving salmon.
0: Uh, now, Representative, uh, let's take it to, to the present day. And what are you hearing from your constituents and others about tribal fishing rights in Washington, and what other work needs to be done going forward?
3: You know, we've got an incredible opportunity in Washington State to really understand who the hell's in charge of the salmon, Right. We've fought for years as the state and the tribes to really develop what is co-management? How do we make decisions together? What can we be doing better? We're looking this year at incorporating a a salmon commission which creates an information panel of legislators who starts making informed decisions based off of what our co-managers are collaborating with at the state. It's time for legislators to invest in natural resources invest in salmon, invest in a regulatory backstop. We need to understand what climate change is to water and what climate change is to salmon. I'm happy to be one of the lone salmon speakers within Washington State. I am thankful for my friend J.T. Wilcox in the Republican side. We speak salmon together. I have great leaders in the Senate. And with a new administration coming in, that clearly also will understand salmon and what it is to be a salmon talker. We've got a lot of work to do to address regulation, policy and science and what we can be doing better and invest financially. But if you're going to invest in salmon, let's not continue to buy off salmon recovery. Let's actually incorporate a regulatory backstop that says, what is salmon? What are we fighting for? How are we going to get there? Do it on the backs of science as co-managers.
0: Representative Lakanoff really appreciate you joining us today and uh, helping get our discussion started. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk a lot more about the Bolt decision. It's been 50 years since the federal judge ruling. Uh, We've got other guests on the show as well who are going to share stories and insights. Stay with us. There are two sides to acknowledge when viewing the Catholic faith among Native Americans. It represents colonial oppression by Spanish conquistadors and by an errant boarding school system. At the same time, Catholicism is a source of comfort and tradition for many Native people, especially among tribes in the Southwest. At the start of Lent, we'll explore Catholicism's lasting importance on the next Native
4: America Calling. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer.
0: Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with fishing rights experts about the 50th anniversary of the Bolt decision. If you or a family member remember the decision or the events that led up to it, join our conversation with a comment or question. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got Ed Johnstone on the line. He's the chairman of the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission. And Ed, I really enjoyed that impassioned uh, uh, description that uh, Representative Lakanoff just gave us with regard to Billy Frank and his significance. But if you could help us uh, understand a little bit more about the significance of the Bolt decision and uh, what did fishing look like in those days, in those years, those generations before the Bolt decision was handed down in 1974?
5: Well, if you we look across the cross-section of the, the 20 member tribes currently of the Northwest Indian Fish Commission, the stories were very similar. And the the main story was there, there weren't many fish. Uh, the, the Along the coast, the... Uh, Coast of Washington, Quinault, Colquitt and up into Macaw, and then down through the Straits and into Puget Sound. There were different degrees of uh, how many fish were getting back to their native streams to their terminal areas, and it was uh, it was really really tough. I mean, being born in the fifties, I remember the fifties and sixties very very well. So a lot of a lot of the fisheries were depending on how those salmon stocks were going how how they were how how those uh, stocks were what kind of status and and then what was what did that mean to each um, to each tribe in their terminal area and um, it it was really a struggle i mean we were we were out everywhere we needed to be to make a living we were in the forest we were we were in the berry fields we were and brush and pine cones, and because you just couldn't really rely on the salmon. How to which point, which we traditionally knew at treaty times and after treaty times, when uh, when the when the people expanded into the Washington Territory and later into the state, then then the salmon really started to disappear uh, because of the kind of the industrialized nation of the way that they view resources in the way they harvested so it was a real existence that that we were trying to to maintain and so those those are really tough periods and it led us into um, the where the tribes were forced to um, try to get out um, off of their reservations and to fish and to uh, and to try to try to bring home the food and try to home bring home some economy and I I guess I'm kind of leaning into what we're calling the fish wars or the fish ends. And that were in many, many places. It wasn't exclusively in the Nisqually. It wasn't exclusively in the Puyallup. It was, it was all, all over our tribes were, were really struggling to, to exist on, on the salmon resource. And um, th- there's a, there's a, really a lot of stories about those individuals that were the leaders in those areas. And uh, and it was a real strategy to the, to the getting to the courts. We, we were trying to find our way to the courts. And then um, and, um, and these fish-ins, the fish wars, and, and it became, um, very, very public in nature when we started the, 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 um, those that were organized in these, these, uh, fish ins were started to bring in, um, uh, people like Marlon Brando and Dick Gregory, and, and it became more into the public's eye and, uh, all we were trying to do was exercise our treaty rights that, that we know that we had and that we held. And um, so getting, getting to that point was a, a long journey. And, and, you know, Billy said, you know, I'm, I'm not the policy guy. I'm, I'm the go-to-jail guy. And there were many, <laughs> many of those in, in, in many of these watersheds that were the go-to-jail people. Mm -hmm. and we you know we uh that journey itself is is quite remarkable and um you see the sacrifices that were made by by the families by the men the women the children and the the destructive nature that that had in uh, in our people and and uh it kind of culminated on the Puyallup River and uh there were there was the demonstration and then this you know the this city police shows up and the state patrol and the fishing and game and and uh, there was a lot of interaction and then you know out comes the tear gas and and uh got got kind of violent kind of really quick and and okay. uh, the railroad bridge got you know burned burned down and what 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 was the key point that there was a a U.S. attorney that was there and was witnessing, and when they gassed the Indians, they gassed the U.S. attorney. And it was really, really public and uh, all over the news, and that's when the U.S. attorney went to his office in Portland, and the United States took the case, United States versus Washington, on behalf of the treaty tribes. And that was really the start of uh, where we found our way to the courts. I don't know if I answered your question, but I think that really needs to kind of be cleared up here. Absolutely. How hard it was for all tribes everywhere.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, Ed, this is great. Wonderful information. Uh, So informative. And let's talk a little bit about Judge George Bolt, the federal judge who made that ruling. What was it that really swayed him and informed him going forward into that? decision he made
5: well if you look at judge Bolton where his background education and where he came from um, there's a recent book out by the state of Washington John Hughes and and it was just public that has has done that and looked at where he was on when he got to the federal bench and how he how effective he was in, in clearing the docket um, he was very thorough, had always had a good team and uh, took on some really tough tasks all the way through um, his career. And when he got assigned to the Western Washington Federal Bench, he was the one that was chosen to take this case. A uh, lot was really known or unknown about the judge. And and uh, I think what it was, was he listened. He, he came into this court case and the tribes got prepared and the state got prepared and uh, quite frankly it's the I think the work that the tribes did and uh, their legal team and our professionals at the tribes that put together the story of who we are and and our treaties and that they they are the supreme law of the land and our, our, our technical folks were much better than the state's technical folks. Our legal teams were much better than their legal teams. And our story was the supreme story mm-hmm. that, that the state's position was what they were doing was they were they and they went into position. In the court was it was kind of based like on a, a wise used decisions that the state was making to catch the salmon before they got to the terminal areas. And so there was ocean troll out in the ocean and, and recreational inside the straits and inside Puget sounds. They had gill net, recreational, and sane boats. And they put their fleets upon the water and they caught all these fish And not to get too technical, but in a lot of these bays and areas were where there were mixed stocks. Like stocks that would be for other rivers uh, or could be a river right in front of them, like the Puyallup, but some of those stocks might be going down into Deep South Sound or up in Tulalip or up in Lummi where, where these, these stocks were from much more than just one river. And they, they called it wise use. And then when it came to the tribes to fish in those terminal areas in their rivers and their natal streams, they said, no, no, you can't fish. All of those fish are needed for conservation. And Mm. so that's, that was a real restricting factor. And, um, so, you know, our, our legal teams that, that, uh, and our, and our, um, witnesses, the expert witness was the judge used anthropologist Barbara Lane. So that, that's the, that's the piece of all these tribes in different areas and, and uh, and then we had our, Ed, our, I'm legal, sorry, our Ed, legal approach.
0: We're going to go ahead and take a caller, Adam. So this is great information, but we've got uh, we got other guests, and we got a caller on the line right now who I want to take. Uh, Norma Keggy uh, from the Skokomish Reservation, who is listening online. Uh, good morning, Norma. Hello.
7: Hello.
0: Hi, Norma. I appreciate you calling in. Uh, What can you share about the Fish Wars or the Bolt decision? I know you've got a close connection.
7: I do. Um, My mom and dad, Joe and Bessie Andrews, still come as tribal members. They pulled me out of school. I was at the Shelton High School. My dad wanted me to witness history making. He said these are things we're going to see in our history books. What surprised me was the array of people. There was all nationalities there. And even some of them wore tie-dye clothes and um, suits, uh, everyday clothes, and also three-piece outfits, you know, just dressed in how they're comfortable in, or even dressed up in their ways
0: i Norm, I'm defense. sorry. So when when some of these, you know, we've heard of Marlon Brando, Dick Gregory, Jane Fonda, when some of these celebrities, the Black Panthers were involved with the support, when you saw these people coming in and, and others as well with this support, did you realize then that that you folks had, had reached a tipping point and uh, and public sentiment was in your favor?
7: No, I didn't realize it at the time. What I thought of was, um, well, first, I was just totally throwing back the Bernard. I thought he was the real pessimist man. Um, but what surprised me was they were on our side, and they took it personal. They really wanted the Native Americans to get what was rightfully ours. And... Joined into our cause, and it made me realize that we weren't standing alone. And it did amaze me. Mm. Our people fought every day for these rights. And when I was young, I realized that um I realized that we were fighting. I had a net in the river. I got up 5:30 every morning. I got up five thirty every morning, be quiet. And um, I worked on the next and then after I was done, dashed home, took a shower, went to school. This is every day for me and other Native Americans. Now they always talked about native drinking and being drunk, but we never had one sip of alcohol never mm. done drugs, never did those things. To this day, I couldn't say that yet. And I just knew that we had to fight not only not only the government but we had to fight everyday people that were right. our friends, I thought, you know, in Norma, our area. Norma,
0: this is uh, so inspiring to hear you and Ed and, and these other guests and uh, just applaud you and And everyone else from your generation who was a part of uh, this pivotal, pivotal moment in Native American history. Really appreciate your call today, Norma. And let's talk to Nancy now. Nancy, again, is an activist and chair of the Salmon Defense Fund. And Nancy Shippentower, I want to welcome you again to the show. And let's also talk about your family's connection to the Bolt decision. Both your parents, as well as yourself, were heavily involved in the Fish Wars. What do you remember?
8: Oh, wow. Um, well, I'm going to tell you that uh, when it came to light about the fishing wars was on October 13th, 1965, when the game agents come and raided uh, Frank's Landing. Um, my dad and and my two little brothers and uh, Dorian Sanchez and the news news guy were on a – it was just a publicity stunt. That's all it was because they never – they never publicized anything that we did. You know, we were just called troublemakers. And a lot of tribes disowned us and called us renegades and everything, you know. And, um, but we just kept persevering because my dad uh, was a young master sergeant, and he escorted a Japanese on, um, on the ship when they were signing their treaties. And as they're crying, he's looking at them like, "We have treaties." And I come home, and and then uh, the fishing harassment started because Rosalini wanted to make this a sportsman paradise for hunting and fishing. And so they get harassed on the river. And um, six of them went to jail for a long time. Uh, my dad was one of them. My uncle Billy Frank, Newt Couch. Herman Johns, Jack McLeod, Al Bridges, you know, and uh and they sacrificed a lot because our people didn't have nothing. But uh, on October 13th, 1965, my dad thought he was going back to jail again. Because they came down and they were beautiful. They were knocking people around. My cousin was 13, they had her hair and they were banging her head against their log. They had Doreen Sanchez. And um Oscar George in the bushes, and they were beating him with those black jacks, and they had things on their fingers that that they were hitting them people with, and they were dragging people around young kids i mean I was only twelve during that time, but I tell you, it was really traumatic to see these people come out of the bushes, they come across the river in high powered boats, you know it was like they just like they just
0: see it's. It's, it's just shocking to hear you describe it. And I, I've read stories of, you know, people out on boats getting shot at, uh, nets, the, the people throwing big concrete bricks on nets to sink them. To your knowledge, any of these people, these private, uh, non-native fishers who just acted so aggressively, violently, criminal acts, were any of those people ever charged or convicted of any of those crimes? No.
8: And no. then when both came down... And everybody was, oh, yeah, we got 50% of the salmon. I said, holy crap, my mom said he stole 50% of the salmon.
0: Uh, Okay, we're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Nancy Shippentower. We'll also talk with Rob Purser, who is another tribal fisherman. Uh, Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Are you a Native American healthcare care provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online master class in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show.
0: You're listening to Native America Calling, and there is still time to get in on this discussion about the Bolt decision and how it has transformed fishing rights here 50 years later. Join us. Our number is 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. If you remember the Bolt decision, if you have relatives that were involved with the fish wars, we'd sure like to hear your stories, or if you have been involved in other activist efforts that you think parallel the fish wars and the bolt decision or you think outcomes that have been favorable in other projects or other efforts across Indian country can be related to the bolt decision, we'd like to hear your perspective. Again, our number 1-800-996-2848. Right now, our guest Nancy Shippentower uh, telling us stories about what she remembers uh, along with her parents heavily, heavily involved in the fish wars. and. Nancy, what else do you remember uh, about that time? And I'm really interested in these clashes that you had there with law enforcement and the police. I mean, was there ever a time when you just thought, you know, we're going to lose this? There's no way we're going to come out on top.
8: Well, you know, I was a kid during that time. And, uh, and you know, they they came into our home, you know, searching for our dad. You know, they searching for nets. And my my dad's canoe is, Hanging up in a museum down at Tacoma, and I can't get it back. Um, and uh, you know, they the the night after October 13th that they did that, they arrested a whole bunch of people or parents my mom and dad, or Don and Janet McCloud, And uh, but they arrested all of them my aunt Mayso her husband Al Bridges, his aunt and and uh, Anyway, um, the next day, there was a bunch of, of our tribal members or people, people down there at Prince Nine, and they had this beautiful place where you could have parties and, you know, do things, uh, dinners and stuff like that, and they raided them. Now, none of these people were involved in the fishing rights. Let me tell you, I'm going to tell you the truth here, that very little people supported the fishing people that were fighting for the fishing rights there was only a handful of people that did that the other people shunned them they had nothing to do with them you know I grew up with people who disowned me as their relative and things like that and now today I hear these people oh yeah I was involved in that no you weren't I feel like getting up and saying where were you I was there (laughs) you know and now everybody wants to take credit you Know for the bolt decision, but I don't think the bolt decision was a good thing. But I guess we got something, you know. Mm-hmm.
0: And well, but, well, Nancy, you know, I mean, you say I'm going to ask you that I means that the bolt decision you don't think it was a good thing. And I know you mentioned uh half the catch, right? And I know there were a lot of folks that felt, hey, uh, we should we're getting the short end here, half the catch, the other half goes to the commercial fishing interests. Uh, also, uh, I know you mentioned uh with our producers that. Some of the co-management meetings. There's still some bullying that goes on in those events. Tell us about that.
8: Well, um, I, 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 oh, first, let me finish what I was I was saying before you interrupted me. That this movement started the movement of the Indian people, the American Indian movement, the the Alcatraz takeover, you know, things like that. Indians started getting together and doing things. And um, you know they had a uh, they had all these organizations that were doing things and fighting for their treaty rights. And um, but as for uh, the co-management, yeah, those are kind of like I don't know. They yeah they still bully us. They still try to you know they take more than what they're they're allowed, and then it's oh geez we're sorry we harvested. Well, no, you've been doing that for years. After the Bolt decision, the commercial fishermen and all of them went out and overharvested, took our runs, and almost depleted our salmon. Judge Bolt had to step in because the state wouldn't do nothing. Judge Bolt had to step in and send send the feds in, but none of them got arrested. Taking thousands of our salmon, none of them got arrested. But our people were going to catch one or two, man, they'd be in jail. So the co-management, these people that are in these meetings know nothing about the indigenous people. I sat in these meetings for 10 to 15 years, and finally I said, you know what? I'm tired of educating these people on who we are. They should know who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, this was our land at one time. This, these were our inherent rights by the Creator." The salmon, the state didn't give us salmon. The federal government didn't give us salmon. It was given to us by the creators. Take care of the salmon, and they'll take care of you.
0: All right, Nancy, uh, thank you. Uh, Lots of good insights here today on Native America Calling. I encourage anyone listening, if you've got a thought on this, if you have a perspective to share on the Bolt decision, maybe you live in that part of the country, maybe you fish yourself, let us know, 1-800-996-2848. Our next guest, Rob Purser, is a tribal fisherman and the Suquamish Tribal Fisheries Director. Rob, I want to thank you again for joining the show. Welcome. And now you were a sophomore in high school during the Bolt decision. What do you remember about that time in, in the fish and other events that led up to the Bolt decision? Yeah,
6: well, you know, as I say, being a sophomore in high school, I... Uh... I would hear, you know, most of it on the news, and I, I, I babysitted for a cousin of mine. He's about 12 years older, and he, yeah. his mom and um, one of my other aunts married into the uh, Lummi tribe, the, uh, the Jefferson family, and the Solomon family, who were fishermen their their whole lives. They fish under state licenses and stuff, but they never never quit. Their families never quit being fishermen, and um, I just, I recall the, the day after the boat decision, what I recall is my, my older cousin, the I I babysitted for at the time, he quit his job, a, a good-paying job in the shipyard, and uh, moved to Lummi to uh, gear up for fishing. And, um, you know, with these, uh, you know, with the help of his uncles and you had years of experience. Um, it wasn't long before he he brought boats down and had my dad and I fishing that that summer. So um, we were fortunate, as, far as um, being able to get a whole whole lot of expert expert help into getting started. And um, you know, from there, that's you know, I recall all the harassment from you know the uh, and game uh, department at the time is what they were. And, uh, you know, it was pretty lawless there for about six, seven years. The state just totally ignored the bolt decision. And, um, they were harassing, uh, fishermen, Indian fishermen everywhere and pointing guns. At, you know, that was a pretty common and, um, so it it went uh, you know a, a few years of some pretty you know you want, didn't know what's going to happen next I guess and it, it, it wasn't until after the you know the U.S. Supreme Court uh, upheld that Bolt decision in '79 that a couple of years later the state finally started coming around to uh, you know trying to work with the tribes. And, okay. uh,
0: so Rob, that would have been like five, seven years of just in. Continued animosity, continued harassment. I mean, this did not have a quick and easy resolution.
6: that's right. And uh, there was a lot of overfishing, as they say, at that time, because the state uh, would turn their heads on the the, the state fishermen. They let them do what they wanted, basically. And um, a lot of fish were depleted in that particular short period of time, too. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to look back at the treaty times, too, is, you know, at the time that the treaties were signed, you know, the Suquamish tribe, anyway, had 279 members when that treaty was signed. And, um, you know, from 20,000 to 279, uh, you know, a lot of tribal members, you know, died. So I think uh, Chief Seattle... He signed that treaty for future generations. Uh, That's the only reason he signed it, looking out, looking ahead. And, um, you know, for the time that treaty was signed until the late 1800s, there was uh, no management on fishing. Uh, Ninety percent of the fish disappeared in Puget Sound from overharvest. Uh, Everything, a lot of things lined up, uh, you know, work against the fish at that time. You had disforestation going on, logging was clear-cutting everything. Dams were being built. Fishing was uh, taking place everywhere, more and more people moving in uh, just to fish. Mm -hmm. And then you had canneries that were being uh, developed at that time. So everything went in a can and went in the railroad cars and it was all of a sudden available all over the world. So the fish population, they say, depleted by ninety percent by the early nineteen hundreds, and um, it didn't really change that much. And then, in my lifetime, I watch ninety percent of of that ten percent disappear. Disappear. So we're right. down to fractions. Fractions well, Rob- of what?
0: So, I mean, it begs the question. I mean, now here we are 50 years later. Um, obviously, the Bolt decision was was landmark uh, in terms of just what it meant for tribal sovereignty. But there have been critics. I mean, we just heard from uh, From Nancy talk about you know some of the issues with co management. I know there are some people that feel hey it 's created barriers in tribal communities uh, now because of the bolt decision, and of course, some people weren 't happy with having to settle for half the catch so what 's your thought now, looking back overall with the bolt decision how How well has it performed and held up with regard to protecting the rights of not only native fisher fish, or p- fish Fishermen and others, but also just these threats—these threats to to the fishing, to the fish population, to the salmon, to the steelhead, and others.
6: Yeah, you know, in, um as I say, in the eighteen hundreds, um, when the treaties were signed, the, the tribes were catching far more fish than the non-tribal. So when we got, you know, guaranteed half the harvest, we took a hit you know, our ancestors took a hit at that time because they were harvesting far more than anyone else for their own livelihoods and, um, you know, for to feed their families. But, you know, that soon changed, and, uh, and, and you know, the treaties kind of got ignored. Um, not kind of, they got ignored. And then when uh, Billy and, uh, and, uh, and several, several Tribal leaders at the time were protesting, uh, and fish fish wars were going on. You know, the the state' uh, main argument was that these treaties were no longer valid. I mean, they they didn't no need for them no more. That was their main argument in court. They they they're outdated, and they don't no longer apply. But uh, you know, of course, Judge Bolt uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, you know. Guarantee that those are living documents that uh, never expire.
7: Mm-hmm.
6: And um, Rob, what you th- also, it also set across the nation all those treaties that have been signed for hundreds of years were all of a sudden alive again. I mean, that, that right. Judge Bolts, it. it it's you know all of a sudden all the states across the nation had to recognize these treaties, and uh, you know that that's probably one of the uh, the uh, more positive things that come from this is the recognition of the treaty our living document and supreme law of the land. Like Ed said,
0: Rob, what about? what the Bolt decision has meant for, for Native culture? Because one issue that we haven't talked about in depth here on the show is just how heavily involved the fishing lifestyle is with the cultures uh, in the tribal communities that you represent. What do we need to say with regard to the cultural implications of, of Bolt here 50 years later?
6: The, the cultural um that, well that that is that really is turned for a positive side too I, I, you know when i was in high school if you can get away with not being indian you did because it was just too much harassment especially during the bolt years but um you know to young, today our younger generations flourish in our culture um you know they they're learning the language uh, the ancestors teachings uh uh canoe journeys i mean it's it's really, really neat to see, you know, take a total opposite from my, t- when I was in youth anyway. So, um, yeah, the culture part of it's just striving and it's, it, you know, it, it all stems from the bolt decision era. You know, if that didn't happen, then, you know, you, you have to wonder what would, what it be like today. And, um. You know, the big thing now is, you know, we work with the the state of Washington. They got different agendas, different direction, but like Billy was instrumental after the Bolt decision too, is creating that cooperative working relationship, even though we have, you know, two separate goals in mind, I guess you should say. Uh, we don't uh, see eye to eye very seldom, but the important thing is we work, sit down and work through it, and that's the collaboration that has to happen in the future uh, for this, you know, to fight to bring back these fish because they're they're in big trouble right now, and that's for lots of reasons.
0: Rob, I really appreciate you joining us uh, on the show today along with our other guests, Representative Deborah Lakanoff, Ed Johnstone, and Nancy Shippentower, and of course, Rob Purser, who helped us uh, remember and understand the legacy of the Bolt decision 50 years later. Hope you'll join us here on NAC again tomorrow. We'll be having a conversation about Catholicism in Native America. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce.
4: Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Sky Screen Printing, who support this program. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Info on 35 tribal colleges and universities at (laughs) aihec.org.
6: کوچیشیز که
5: healthcare.gov
6: 1800 318 2596 medicaid aya